This is Blaze Brosnan. I'm your host for this episode of MIR Meets. Today, we'll be speaking with Richard Hanania. Richard Hanania is a trained international relations theorist who has since moved into the world of political commentary and has gained prominence in the past year as one of the most boldly heterodox voices on international affairs and domestic issues alike. His book, Public Choice Theory and the Illusion of Grand Strategy, came out last month, and that's a pretty broad critique of uh, overly interventionist views of foreign policy, as well as IO methodology in general. We'll get into that pretty quickly. So I guess my, my first question is, you're trained as an international relations theorist, but you have some major qualms with mainstream IR methodology. What in your mind are the critical shortcomings of present day IR as a discipline? Hi, uh, Blaze. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, IR, I mean, starts with the perspective of the unitary actor model. So the idea is that the uh, U.S. or Amer- foreign policy in general um, can be understood. You can understand states the way you understand um, economics, which is the idea that basically states are actors and you can think of them as individuals uh, or anal- analogous to that. Um, so you can think of them as basically um, institutions with goals and desires and strategies that they go about trying to accomplish things. And this is really sort of inconsistent with the way we think about uh, politics more generally. Um, so it's... Um, so I think there's a sort of a contradiction there between the way we think about rationality in general as for individuals and the way we think about them, the concept of states in, in the field. And that's sort of the, uh, that's the key idea of the book. So I guess the primary assumption that you take issue with is the rational actor model, basically, that states operate as rational actors rather than just kind of, uh, you know, compositions of various constituencies and domestic interests. Given that, how can IR improve as a field? What would you like to see for the discipline? Well, I mean, that's a good, that's a very good question. Are, do you study uh, international relations or political science or anything similar? I'm basically mostly political theory. So mix of political theory and philosophy. I've taken one IR course. I'm only in my second year though. So. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's a good question. And I think like one, one question that sort of hangs over the book is whether IR really is justified in being its own field. So why wouldn't we just study it like we study American politics, you know, and in, the, in political science in America, I don't know, maybe in Canada and elsewhere, basically political science is broken up into like four or five subfields. So there's American politics, uh, there's uh, international relations or something called comparative politics. Um, there's political theory, which, you know, you're, that's your major. And, um, you know, sometimes there's race, ethnicity and politics, which is a new identity politics kind of thing that was just created. Um, and and the question is, you know, what, what's the justification for having uh, each of these subfields? Well, they do different things. Political theory does something different from American politics. That's obvious. Uh, I think uh, American politics and international relations, though, I mean, it's still international relations is in a way still American politics. It's Congress. It's the executive branch. It's, it's politics. It's public opinion elections. You know, all the stuff that you care about in, uh, in American politics. Um, so I think, the, I mean, I think the field of IR, to, you know, if you just think of it as the, the subject matter that it's studying, I think it needs to be more sort of plugged into the real world. I mean, I think that in general, um, sometimes the, uh, you know, the field uh, takes you further away from truth and get, gets you closer there. And then what you're supposed to do, you know, with the academic field, you're supposed to develop tools that make you better able to explain the world. So I think that the literature from IR specialists on Iraq and Afghanistan, for example, the literature has not been very good because the actual conduct of the U.S. Um, has been so inconsistent with anything resembling 
building, you know, logic or rationality or, or competence, um, that no theory that like, you know, takes people seriously and, you know, can account for it. Um, and so some of the best accounts of what's uh, happened, you know, going into Iraq and going to Afghanistan have come from journalists, have come from reporters who are not in the field, who don't have this commitment to the unitary actor model or anything like it. Um, so I think, you know, I think that we, I think we should probably move away from that. I mean, I don't know what it contributes. And I think we should think more in terms of uh, uh, sort of, we should be more agnostic about sort of what's determining, you know, the, the, the foreign policy uh, behavior we see. Now, I guess one question, sort of a corollary question I have to that is, I think, I mean, a lot of international kind of realist theorists would admit that unitary actor model might not work all that well in the short term. So and for my, little kind of micro bits of history, like the Iraq war, probably no one will remember it in 200 years, you know, it might not work all that well. Do you think in kind of a long-term arc of history bent, like going from the peace of Westphalia to the present, you can draw a coherent pattern based on rational actor assumptions? Uh, no, I really don't think so. I, th- I think it's actually, I mean, because things, right, things change so much. I mean, it, with technology and, you know, everything else going on. So, I mean, it's hard to, so I mean, I guess the argument would be if you take the sort of rational actor model and you just look at like, you know, like you study like every century and you break it down to like a sentence um, of the last few centuries, does it work like that? Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. I think to understand like what the U.S. did after World War II, um, you know, the Cold War uh, and afterwards, you have to understand something about American politics. You have to understand something about norms and like why the U.S. didn't just like enslave Europe, like, you know, like Genghis Khan would have done or something, you know, after conquering it and done the same to Japan. Yeah, I think, I think the theory, the, the sort of the more you broaden your time horizon, uh, the harder it is to have a theory that explains everything. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure if I agree with that. Another question I have sort of is what differentiates your approach from just standard domestic level analyses of foreign policy? Like I took a class in uh, one class in IR and, you know, we were taught structural realist models. Sure. Domestic models also got their, got their time. And even people like, like John Mearsheimer, for instance, would explain like the Israel lobby based on just a domestic analysis. What differentiates your approach to just kind of domestic models? Is it a deep skepticism of just kind of systematic methodology in general? Or I mean, yeah, there's a yeah, there's a skepticism of sort of yeah, simplified theories of American foreign policy. Um, although I try to present a model that I think is you know as simplified as, as possible and I'm able to um, explain some things. But yeah, it's 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 um, you know it's I think that. Even the you know the domestic model. I think that the unitary actor model is so sort of it casts such a shadow over the field of international relations that even people who doubt it or you know or, or you know explicitly are anti-realist are sort of taken in by it. So people who are like anti-war will be like, you know, we need a new grand strategy. The U.S. should like you know use the same language as like standard international relations people, and they'll say, you know, we we need to uh, you know scale back our commitments and we need to, like it's just you know a decision of one guy who's just gonna you know turn like turn the ship around. Um, I have a chapter. The last chapter of the book is about like the actual practical implications for changing foreign policy. And so I'm skeptical of sort of just this idea that you'll you'll have better ideas and you'll be able to change foreign policy and get people to adopt a new strategy because I don't think there's a, you know, there's a strategy to it uh, in the first place. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, everyone, I mean, it's not, it's a, it would be a straw man to say like, there's anyone out there who's just like a pure realist who doesn't think about um, domestic politics at all. I just think there's very few people who are taking it uh, seriously enough, and really not only taking it seriously enough, but connecting it to like one of the things that annoyed me when I was in uh, academia is that like you would have like this 
subfield over here doing something or these group of scholars are here doing something and like the things would completely contradict and like nobody would like bring them together and say okay you guys are right and you guys are wrong and you guys are fired because your your things just you know completely contradict not everything is a synthesis sometimes just some methodologies i think are just not not very good um and i think that you know that's sort of that's one thing that sort of annoys me academia it's like yes like there's so many problems with realism but then like you can just be a realist and like pretend like you know it, there's th these critiques don't exist and you can you know be, you could be somebody who's uh, cr critical of the philosophy and you just do your own thing and i i think one of the things i try to do is say okay you know the x and y can't both be true we should probably go with y and you know go, not go with x or vice versa you might have i mean you might have some and you've talked about you know how you've learned a lot from history um in your analyses and you might have um you might you might have some kind of more luck, you know, pushing your approach with like international relations historians. Like for instance, I mean, the standard explanation historians of China or the Cold War give uh, for why China the why China became aligned with the U.S. Um, later on in the Cold War differs very radically from the standard IR explanation. And I'm of the opinion that the uh, history history explanation is true. So the I mean, the IR explanation is basically you know um. Uh, the uh, China, the the, um, the Soviet Union, um, and China and, and China were much weaker than the U.S. during the first part of the Cold War, and then the Soviet Union uh, kind of reached parity, uh, maybe in the mid '60s or late '60s, and so China um, had to move to counter the Soviet power, and that's why they moved to U.S. Um, you know, kind of aligning with the U.S. But if you read the history behind it, I mean, China's foreign policy was just in complete anarchy between the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. And it was really just um, just a series of kind of almost, you know, a lot of like luck played a huge role in, you know, the U.S. American diplomatic uh, people actually getting together with China and convincing them that they were, um, you know, could work together, essentially. So I guess that's one example that sort of supports your theory. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that's an interesting case. I mean, I think there was a, you're, you're right. I think the historic contingency is a big is a big thing. I mean, I think that the ideology between, you know, the ideological differences between China and, and the Soviet Union were a big deal. I mean, China was just much, much more radical than the Soviet Union and, you know, didn't agree with desolidization. Um, but yeah, I think American domestic politics, you know, had a, had a huge role because Nixon was thinking about, um, Nixon was thinking about Vietnam. That's what he cared about most in foreign policy and making peace with China was a sort of a way you know, to, uh, uh, to to um, to try to bring Vietnam to a close, or at least be able to do so, you know, eventually. Um, so yeah, I mean, Nixon cared a lot about foreign policy. Was willing to extend a lot of political capital. I mean, only Nixon, like they say, only Nixon could have gotten to China. I mean, maybe that's maybe that's true. It would have been hard for any other president. And so I think there is, yeah, I think there's a lot there. I mean, the standard international relations, I mean, model. I mean, it's a you know, it's, it's like hard to say because the U.S. was still more powerful. I mean, the U.S. was more yeah, powerful than the Soviet Union. Of course. Um, but they're only judging in terms of like nuclear weapons, basically. It's yeah. very, very uh, or, you know, so, Yeah, so it's hard to say what exactly I mean, the realist explanation is. It could be that like Soviet Union is more threat because it's right next to it, right? So it, it could like, you know, invade potentially while the U.S. Uh, couldn't. Um, but the U.S. is more powerful overall. But like, you know, that we don't have to like... I mean, that, that, that's a very deterministic kind of realism, which would say like, oh, China, although John Mersheimer in his book, The Tragedy of Great Power Politics does like explain World War II in this way. It's like very deterministic. Okay, Germany was uh, getting stronger, um, you know, Britain didn't, you know, didn't like this, France did this, and you, you know, you don't need, uh, you know, domestic politics, which I think is crazy. I think, you know, the, the ideology of, of Germany was obviously very, very important and same for the Soviet Union, which caused the, uh, which caused the, the backlash um, and made many, many countries go fascist or 
go or go very far right wing um, in the years before uh, World War II. Um, but yeah, that's so you know the, so the, yeah, there's like a realistic expression, but just even like to have like a unitary actor model, I, it, which is not exactly the same as realism because the unitary actor model could um, you know potentially you can have an actor that behaves you know. Uh, uh, against its interest or do any other kinds of, you know, weird things. But if it's all working in the same direction, you would still have sort of a, a, a grand strategy. Um, and I think that something like China or the Soviet Union probably gets closer to a grand strategy than something like the U.S., which is a, uh, an open country, a democratic society with, you know, by design has checks and balances and all that. Um, so, you know, whether, you know, dictatorships or democracies, you know, the system of government matters for how much you could say it has a, a unified, uh, acts as a unified actor or to the extent to which it has a grand strategy. That's something the book doesn't go into, but is an interesting question. So you also argue that major social unrest in the U.S. is unlikely in the near future. Can you explain your argument to our listeners, basically? I mean, for context, there are a lot of people out there who argue that, you know, the U.S. is going to see um, a civil war in like five or ten years, which I think is completely hyperbolic. But just even kind of the weaker uh, approach is that we're seeing kind of a historic wave of social unrest. And you say that's not true. So can you explain uh, your argument, basically? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the idea that, you know, what, why do countries say, you know, so that we have data, you know, there's empirical data on countries and when they have civil wars. And I think like a lot of political science, the data is not perfect, but, you know, it, it's what we have. And it, it's meshes with sort of common sense and common experience. And the idea is countries fight civil wars um, when the state is weak. Um, when, you know, and so this happens during decolonization, this happens when, like, for example, if the U.S. goes and overthrows your government, then you might, you know, you might have a civil war because there's no more hegemon to, uh, you know, to keep the peace. Um, and so countries that are poor and countries with weak state capacity um, are the ones who have civil wars. It's not necessarily the countries where um, you have the most diverse ethnic or cultural diversity or where people hate them as people can hate each other for all kinds of reasons. Uh, completely ethnically homogenous countries can have, you know, civil wars. They can they can hate each other. I mean, if you remove the uh, government from, um, you know, so basically the, the lesson of the, you know, the lesson of the literature is you'd rather be, and another thing, by the way, is geography. So civil wars are always fought. Basically, the, the, the pattern is the government controls the cities and then the insurgents hide out where the state can't get to. So like mountains and swamps and you know, forests and, and stuff like that, just places that don't have much capacity. Um, and so if you look at the geography of civil war, you know, that's basically where you see, you see poor countries and you see it within countries that have civil wars, you see it in certain geographic uh, areas, you know, things like, you know, mountainous territory is a big predictor of uh, civil war. Um, and none of this applies to the U.S. So people are just looking at the, the fact how much Americans hate each other and they're seeing, okay, we seem to hate each other more and there seems to be some truth to that. Like there's, you know, more uh, effective polarization where people don't like the other party. Like, okay, but the U.S. is still a rich country. The government uh, still works. Um, you know, the government can still really, the government can still reach basically there's, there's no place in America where you can hide where the government can't get to you. And that's what you need for a civil war. So, you know, don't expect a civil war in the U.S. I actually have to say the, the this is like something that like a lot of people talk about, but like, and, you know, the, the um, you know, I think political scientists have conducted themselves terribly, like, you know, public health officials have. I think the partisanship has made a lot of people just very, very stupid. But if you go to Manac Metaculus as a, as a website where people uh, sort of make predictions and they, they tend to be more on the rationalist end of the spectrum. And, you know, there's a question, will the U.S., you know, have a civil war in the next 10 or 15 years? And, it, you know, it gives it like a three or three percent or something. And I give it like two percent. You know, I, I, I put on my predictions sometimes from Metaculus and other uh, uh, predicting and forecasting websites. Uh, so I think, you know, I think 
anyone who's forced to bet on it or, you know, people who have good cognitive habits don't believe the U.S. is headed towards civil war. Um, but that doesn't mean that some political scientists don't agree. And I think they're particularly caught up in partisanship and they're caught up in the moment. And a lot of people who study, I think most people who study civil wars uh, themselves probably don't believe this, although there's a uh, one scholar in the civil war literature, at least, who, who, who has been um, arguing that it's more likely. But I think, I think probably most people who study the empirical literature, when I published an op-ed on the Washington Post on this, um, the, the reactions I got from academia were, were mostly um, or people who looked into the uh, quantitative literature. Um, they were basically saying, like, you know, you're, you're basically right. We're glad somebody made these arguments. One thing I'd be more interested in kind of learning more about is how does your contention that state capacity is a determinant factor in social unrest square with the historical record or the historical literature? So you have many mainstream historians who attribute events, you know, the French Revolution, the uh, uh, class conflict of the, ni- the long 19th century, you know, the revolutions of 1848, um, and the Russian Revolution to really poorly managed inequality. So are they wrong? Or do you think that state capacity is just so far superior in modern states yeah. um, in the 21st century that comparisons can't really be made? Yeah, the, the latter. So if you look at something like, you know, GDP, you know, GDP per capita, I mean, the US, the UK, the, the most advanced states 50 to 100 years ago, were much poorer than, you know, even some of the poorest countries today. Um, and so you have technology and you have just the wealth that the state can and can put towards uh, suppressing rebellion. You know, I think that's, I think these, those are the keys. You could look at, um, you know, you could look at uh, inequality, you could look at inequality shocks. I don't think there's much evidence showing that there's um, anything there. The US has been seeing an increase in inequality. I think the inequality I think is very weird. I think it's something that academics like to believe is is important because they like redistributing wealth. So any excuse you can have uh, to redistribute wealth, you know, they'll want to see it. We've seen rising inequality. Um, and basically, you know, there, there's technology, there's technology, there's globalization, there's a lot going on, and we've seen it. Uh, we've seen it basically across the Western world, and no Western country has had a civil war or anything close to it. I don't think we even have vi- a lot of violence. I mean, you look at the U.S. in the '60s and '70s, which, uh, which was, um, uh, you know, which was a, a more uh, a more equal society. Um, we had a lot, we had a lot more violence. We had a lot more, uh, uh, we had a lot more rioting and a lot more, uh, 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 like you know, there was like all these bombings in the late '60s and the '90s. Yeah. Uh, early 70s um and so yeah I, I don't believe i don't believe it's you can you can make that connection i, I just think that's a, another sort of just so story and the state's capacity is, is sort of the key does today's the state capacity today does it also have an ideological dimension because it just seems sort of like i mean you know it's you can you can you can explain why today is say more peaceful than the 60s the idea of kind of you explain that through brute state capacity doesn't make a ton of sense to me because it's not like, you know, we have radically more dramatic, you know, ways of, you know, uh, preventing, uh, you know, some social unrest today than we did say in the 70s. Is there an ideological dimension to that? Like, well, uh, I don't know. I mean, we have we have like, you know, now when there's a crime, there's cameras on every oh, yeah. street corner. You watch like the Sopranos or something just 20 years ago. And, uh, you know, they're like killing people in broad daylight. And today, like, you know, there's just cameras everywhere. And it's, it's hard to it's hard to even imagine that. Uh, so like, yeah, like stuff like the mafia. I mean, I think that, that their jobs are much, much harder um, than, than, than it was, you know, 30, 40 years ago. So I, I do think actually state capacity has changed. Uh, in the grand scheme, of things though the the u.s in the uh uh in this in the 60s wasn't you know particularly violent from like a world historical perspective right just a little more violent than uh than today but you know the u.s you know had state capacity then and it has a certain amount of state capacity now as far as like 
ideological, like whether we are like more, I don't think we're like more trusting of the government or the state has more legitimacy. I think if you look at survey data, it's the opposite. People are trusting sort of government and institutions less. Um, so I think that helps the case for, you know, it all being about sort of the opportunity for rebellion, rather the, the academic terms, basically say opportunity versus grievance. So uh, the state capacity argument is opportunity, whether there's an opportunity to build grievance is about, you know, inequality or how much hate people hate each other, how much people don't believe in the government. We see, you know, a record level since we've been polling about distrust in the, uh, the media, government, Congress, institutions, and that doesn't mean people are getting violent for the most part. So I think that's a good case against grievance being that important for political violence. Maybe maybe it matters for other stuff, but not for like whether you're gonna have a civil war. I mean, I guess one kind of somewhat you know slight argument against the case for non-political for non-political violence, you know, is that um, if you look at the rate of medical advancements, it's very you know, and compare it to you know the changes in homicide rates, for instance, it looks like probably I, I guess that the, the late '60s were probably somewhat more peaceful in terms of no, we have more street street yeah, violence. Exactly, we have to be yeah. very careful. Like we have yeah. to be very careful about what we're talking about. So the causes and consequences of uh, yeah. uh, crime and civil war, right, are different things. And that's why political scientists study them differently, right? Um, the, the thing about civil war is government reacts very forcefully. So it's about capacity. So government reacts very forcefully when there's a threat to its own power. I don't think it cares that much about threats to just normal people. One good thing about academia does does sort of just narrow the question. So it's, it's easy to get confused otherwise and sort of group things together. Um, uh, so I guess moving on, one running thread I see in your work is a general skepticism of expertise and systematic methods in favor of good intellectual habits, what you call it, and intuition. You often cite Philip Tetlock's research that experts are frequently outperformed by non-experts in predictions related to their area of specialty. But Tetlock also argues that um, these uh, kind of experts, he calls them hedgehogs after Isaiah Berlin, uh, Isaiah Berlin calls kind of grand theorists hedgehogs and generalist foxes. Tetlock also argues that hedgehogs can also greatly outperform foxes in specific circumstances. I think you got opposite. Foxes outperform. Foxes are the generalists. They well, no, but Tetlock also argues that hedgehogs can also outperform foxes in specific circumstances. So, well, most of the time, you know, mm. often, often foxes, you know, do better. Um, that's really a surprising conclusion he know, he, he's known for, but he also kind of vindicates the claim in his book, Expert Political Judgment, that there are certain cases where hedgehogs can really be proven really right. And so I think unlike non-expert observers, hedgehogs, you know, grand theorists have the advantage of having internally coherent beliefs often. And that's why well, those beliefs are bound to be usually wrong. Sometimes they're utterly vindicated. So, I mean, I guess, is there an area in the social sciences that you think would actually benefit from more expertise in systematic analysis? And then is the surprising success of non-expert generalist lay forecasters, is that really due primarily to better instincts and intuition or rather just blind luck? And so another way to think about it is, I mean, you know, if you, uh, I think that the analogy Tetlock makes is, you know, if you uh, if you're making kind of just completely random predictions, you're probably statistically more likely to do a pretty good job, um, you know, just randomly than if you have one grand theory out of many that's probably wrong. But of course, some grand theories, you know, all right, naturally end up advancing knowledge a lot. Yeah. And so I guess, so how do you respond to that kind of uh, question or kind of, yeah. Yeah, so it's hard, it's hard to know, you know, uh, you know, beforehand, 
who's going to have the right theory or who's going to be, um, you know, who's going to be proven correct and who, whose theory is, you know, worse than chance and whose theory is better than chance will make you write about things. I, I think, I think that's, that, that's a good point. Um, I think that the problem with expertise is I think one thing, one clear lesson from Tetlock is that not that you can necessarily pick who the great forecaster would be ahead of time. It's that you shouldn't be enamored with credentials. So if someone comes along and says, I have a, you know, I'm, I'm an expert in public health or I'm an expert in foreign policy, and that's all you know, and somebody else is not, and let's say they're equally intelligent, but they're not an expert in the field, you shouldn't think that that person who's an expert in the field necessarily um, is going to know more about what's going to happen or is going to understand the situation better, right? Um, and so the, you know, the, the, the point is, I think, is what we need to be thinking about is not how to, um, you know, how to like know ahead of time which experts are going to be right or wrong, but it's about creating mechanisms where we have institutions and we have practices where the people who get things right um, tend to acquire power and resources and, uh, and the people who get things wrong tend to not. So what are examples of this? Markets, just markets, the simplest thing in the world. You have a one way of running a business. Somebody has another way of running a business, or you have some, some way of, you know, designing a new car and somebody has another way. Uh, one person's going to be right. And one person's going to be wrong. The people are going to want to, uh, they're going to want to buy the product of the person who, who does a better job. Um, it's, it's harder in, in politics, but you, you know, I think that that's why we, you should, we should make more use of things like forecasting tournaments, betting markets, uh, prediction markets, things like that. Um, so I, you know, ideally, you know, the one thing they do in the Chinese system, which is very, very interesting is they have objective metrics and it's, it's complicated to find out exactly what's going on. But basically if you have higher GDP growth or whatever else the government wants you to do right now, they're worried about birth rates, you'll get promoted based on objective objective metrics, right? Um, and so you don't sit there and say, this is the best way to do something. I mean, sometimes you do do that, but basically you let there be a lot of experimentation um, at the local level. Now in the US uh, context, like elections are supposed to sort of work like that, where like, you know, you have an incumbent and they do stuff and like, you know, people either uh, vote for them or vote for them for another office or don't. But like voters, you know, they're, you know, they're, there's a lot going on with them. You know, often they're not the best judges of sort of, uh, you know, uh, objective track record. They're, they're partisan. They, you know, they vote on things that really don't make a lot of sense to vote on, like gas prices and, you know, stuff like that. Um, so, you know, we can question how well sort of uh, uh, sort of that works. But I think, I think, yeah, I think we need, I'm just a big fan. Uh, I'm, you know, just a, a very, you know, skeptical of arbitrary credentialism, um, specialized knowledge that has not been tested in the real world, and a big fan of, you know, processes to getting to a better place. I think we have to be careful because there's a guy named uh, John Rauch who wrote a book called um, uh, The Constitution of Knowledge. And I reviewed this book. For, yeah, uh, I saw that. Yeah. And, and I reviewed it for Claremont Review of Books. And one thing he says is like peer review is like one way of like getting a truth and democracy is another way. Of, and the thing about peer review is that like, you know, you have a community and someone else can come and you can have an idea, someone can challenge. But my question was um, in the review was like, what's the test against the real world? I say X and you say Y. And then like, we just have a bunch of journals and then the editor like publishes one and other people decide to, decide to cycle, right? That, that's not a mechanism. It's not a market. It's not getting a plane off the ground. It's not predicting something then keeping track and seeing what's going to happen. Um, so I think we should be on the lookout for fake expertise and also fake methods to determine expertise. And I think the peer review system, you know, falls under that category. What about like, it's real quick, what are like the efficient market hypothesis? Do you see that as, you know, a, kind of actually a challenge to your argument that, you know, the market actually builds experts in a sense? Because if people, I mean, if you can't outperform the market, for instance, then, I mean, the idea that uh, the market is really like a better meritocracy than, uh, you know, say, uh, you know, government or something, um, that would seem to challenge a little, but I'm just wondering like what you'd say to that. I mean, 
Yeah, I mean, somebody, some people beat the market, right? I, I don't think that Peter Lynch, is- yeah. But I mean, it's very, very difficult to do it consistently. And it's people like, you know, your average uh, finance bro doesn't do much better than a computer just taking random guesses. Right. I, I know that's true, right? And so, yeah. that, so that's, I mean, that's, that's a case against finance bros, right? That's a case against, uh, uh, you know, investment banking maybe a, a, as a whole. Um, but, you know, the idea, but I think, I think some people beat the market better than chance. I'm not, I'm not sure. I, 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 I don't remember. I've looked a little bit into this literature, but is that right? Are you familiar with? I mean, I mean are, so there are a few people who do, but of course, I mean, there's so many people involved in, you know, yeah, is it more way, it, other, yeah. not more than yeah. other fields, really. I mean, I think you can kind of also build like high X arguing on the use of knowledge in society kind of into that, you know, uh, the market is the result of, you know, just so yeah. many actors out there. Yeah, I mean, so that's that's all. I know the guy Peter Lynch beat the market by a lot, but I think generally it's quite hard. And then there's also the random. Yeah. I mean, by chance, some people are going to beat the market year yeah, after year. I mean, so it's like some because there's so many uh, investors. Yeah. So how do how do how do uh, so if you're uh, the so the you know the, your question is um, if it's true that like let's say let's say assume argument it's true that no that like nobody can beat the market year after year, and that's a big F. Would that hurt my? Uh, 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 idea that like there are real forecasters who can actually um, who can actually predict is that, is that, is that what you're saying because I think that's an interesting I mean yeah. I get, I'm just curious I mean what you say to that I mean yeah I think I mean I think it depends I it, it, so it's, it's, it's an it's an empirical question at this point if you're right that nobody um, can beat the market that nobody can actually beat the market and I, I think that's I don't think that's I don't think that's actually true. Uh, but if it was, I, I would, yeah, I do think that that would be analogous. Uh, well, I mean, actually, yeah, actually, well, let's, let's think about that. Well, the, the market, I mean, is is a place where everyone puts skin in the game, right? So it is a process for determining truth. And I guess the question is whether what what are we complain what are we comparing forecasting uh, prediction markets or the stock market to, right? Well, we're the the current state of the world is arbitrary expertise it's anthony fauci it's somebody has some degrees they have some uh they have some publications and they're you know they, they go to the most prestigious places and then they're supposed to understand a lot of the world and they're supposed to you know tell you what's going to happen or explain things to you and the market i mean the, i think the market isn't just another mechanism for you know putting uh uh, you know, just just uh, making consequences for people's actions, and it's it's basically it's you know it's driving out the bad money and it's keeping good. So everyone in the market has um, you know hasn't been ruined by the market yet. So you have a selection effect where like you know people who don't know what they're doing are are always dropping by by the wayside. Um, and I think the fact that that's rational, I mean, and that uh, that like you know stockbrokers don't do that well i think is actually yeah it's probably it's probably more consistent with the uh uh the my critique of experts than than, than a problem for it and another another kind of uh um sort of question about your critique of experts i have is do you see it as you know basically a validating i mean it was, i mean what i've been kind of vexed by is there i think there, we have two views of expertise in this country and they're both kind of wrong one is you know you worship experts you know uh they're right and if you challenge them um you know somehow committing a major faux pas the other is that just anyone out there even someone who you know doesn't even seem very smart can have some kind of special wisdom and i see you as kind of cutting against both those approaches really because i mean what you're really saying is that raw there is something raw intelligence or g you know whatever that um is most successful and so do you see that as validating kind of on a macro level just our elite uh kind of establishment in a certain way like i know you've argued you know you can bet you know you can 
there are things you read on, say, uh, the National Review that you won't find in the Washington Post, and some of them are pretty insightful, but generally you get a better worldview from, say, the Washington Post than a conservative publication, the most highbrow one. So do you see, I guess, your view is, in a certain way, kind of uh, validating the idea that there should be an elite in a certain sense, but just that our current mechanisms are flawed? Uh, yes. So, I mean, yes. So there's, I mean, yeah, there's, you're right. There's this uh, tendency to worship expertise. I think we've seen it like to a ridiculous degree that I wouldn't have thought possible with, uh, with public health, with public health during the pandemic. Uh, and then you have this sort of this, you know, this uh, sort of just skepticism of, you know, everyone and everyone in a lab coat or, you know, belief in just any, anyone who comes along and tells you anything. And so, yeah, my, my, you know, my belief is that arbitrary sort of measures of expertise, like, you know, where you went to school or, uh, you know, where you published your papers or, or, or whatever. Um, I think that that's what we shouldn't have, but are there people who are better than other people at understanding the world? And is part of the reason they're better because of their biology, because they're just genetically smarter? Yes. And it's not just intelligence because some intelligent people take all their brains and they do nothing with it, but try to publish as many worthless papers as possible and get as much prestige as possible. And I don't think those people are very good at uh, finding truth. They might be worse than the average person. So yeah, I think intelligence is a, is a, is a necessary but not a, a sufficient condition um, for having uh, for having an ability to sort of understand the understand the world. So I think the other things are low. Um, if I had to sort of list them, it would be high intelligence. It would be uh, a low social desirability bias, and then you know something along you know something along the lines of emotional stability. Because I think some people are just <laughs> emotionally unable to handle certain ideas, um, and that that's obviously hindrance to, to finding uh, truth. Yeah. So so moving on. Um... You've established yourself as a pretty incisive critic of U.S.-China policy and kind of elite China analysis. So you argue two things. Um, you argue that Americans simultaneously overrate the threat of China to the U.S., but actually understate the inevitability of China's rise. You're pretty bullish on China's rise, but you also think um, we overstate the threat of that. So why do you think the Chinese are poised to kind of overtake us in a lot of ways? And correspondingly, why wouldn't the rise of China pose a threat to U.S. interests? Yeah, so I mean, the U.S. punditocracy has been very uh, pessimistic about China in the sense that either you know they didn't what they didn't think was the country could grow very uh, would continue to grow uh, rapidly and maintain its political system. So some people said it would collapse. Some people said it would democratize and have to liberalize politically. Neither of those things have happened. Chinese growth is uh, still going strong. It's made it, uh, it was the first country to return to growth, uh, the first major economy to return the, to growth after the pandemic, made up more ground on the US um, in 2020 than any other year. Um, and so the Chinese, the Chinese system just, you know, works in the uh, sort of the, the, the sense of just functioning very well, being stable, uh, providing economic growth, providing social stability. I mean, that, that's what you see if you just look at numbers and you look at sort of, uh, I think, the, the most objective metrics. If you look at if you have a narrative and you want to find a narrative where everything's falling apart and, you know, the Chinese system doesn't work, you can find that, too. So I think the Chinese I think the Chinese system um, works. I think the Chinese uh, people have proven themselves to be be uh, quite talented. If you look at things like you know uh, patents, and you look at things like innovation, um, and you think look at things like uh, international test scores, they all they all point in the same direction. It's just remarkable overperformance uh, for a middle income country. And by the way, there's 1.4 billion of them, right? There, there's you know uh, there's something like four of them for every every one of uh, one of us. Um, and so China, you know, per it started at a much lower rate. Obviously, it's still much better to live in America than than to live in China. Um, your living standards are still much higher here, um, but in, in 
terms of you know absolute power um, on a global stage, China is in the process of surpassing the U.S. and you know probably will eventually get to uh, uh, equalize American living standards. Though that'll take a very very long time, just because the uh, the process of economic growth doesn't happen um, overnight. Now the the, uh, the question is, can we um, uh, can we live with this and is this a threat to us? Uh, you know, I, this goes back to my theory of American foreign policy. I think that it always needs something to do. So after the uh, uh, after the um, uh, Cold War ended, if we started hearing about responsibility to protect, we started hearing about um, uh, humanitarian interventions, and basically, you know, the U.S. had more goals than it was supposed to accomplish. We had 9/11, and I think that the the the, the talk about China, you know, the, the fear of China, I think it relates to the war on terror sort of winding down and not being able to be used as justification for large military budgets and expansive foreign policy, it'll still be used. I mean, we still have, uh, you know, troops all, all over the Middle East and Africa, and, you know, we're still, uh, you know, involved, although Biden has scaled back the drone war. I think there, you know, the, the Washington sort of needs one thing to focus on at the time, and that's why we're focusing on China. I mean, what is the threat to China? China is not going to invade the U.S. It gains from trade, it gains from the international system. It has a dispute with Hong Kong, which, you know, the U.S. knew, and the U.S. transferred, I mean, the U.S. had a uh, one child uh, one china policy and transfer this you know as part of the transfer of the seat from the un from taiwan uh to china um and so you know the, the you know the question is i mean what are we i mean so the question is you know what is what is the threat here and if you look at any individual it's hard to like know what to attack because you know they, they throw every argument they can so they'll say, you know, it's, uh, you know, China is, uh, you know, people blame like China for wokeness and like, you know, uh, supporting left-wing causes, which is just, you know, just really funny. Um, you'll hear people say, oh, China stole our intellectual property. And like, yeah, all countries, when they're poor, they steal intellectual property. Um, you know, that's a, a cost borne by corporations mostly. And, you know, it's a cost of doing business. So they'd rather do business with China. And that's basically just something that happens, you know, has happened throughout uh, throughout uh, recent history. Um, and then you'll hear, well, China's on the march because it's like, you know, it has a dispute with the Philippines or Vietnam, like literally who cares? Like, like that, you know, that's all my, you know, that's my response to that. Um, and so, you know, every one of these arguments you have to sort of take, and I, I think that they're usually bad. Um, and, you know, I think there's a sort of a common motivation to find something to fight about uh, behind all of them. Yeah. I mean, so go going back to your kind of bullishness on China's rise, there are a few arguments I can think against the view that China's growth and status in the world will continue to rise, at least at the rate that China bulls predict. So one thing is, it's really, really difficult for countries to get out of the middle income trap. Uh, middle income countries tend to lose the advantage that poor countries have in manufacturing and return on investments. And I think one way, you know, to view Xi's more, uh, you know, a authoritarian policies is that he's trying to combat um, the risk of, you know, this high level of inequality, uh, you know, rent seeking upper class, corruption, combined with, uh, with that we see in a lot of middle income countries, combined with uh, declining return on investments by trying to aggressively centralize economic and social order. But I mean, productivity growth is still slowing a lot, investments are still slowing. So I mean, the, the efficacy of that approach, the top-down approach might be limited. And then the second thing is that China's approval is declining globally. Xi, I don't know how much the Chinese really care too much about, you know, uh, international approval, um, at least in kind of the Western sense. But I mean, they have their, their approval ratings internationally just declined massively. I mean, they are making certain progress in the Belt and Road and these various initiatives, but people don't like, you know, people do not like their approach anywhere near as much. So it seems, I guess, I guess one criticism is, you know, um, 
it seems, you know, is the American model, isn't the American model also kind of more popular, sort of? I mean, how do you kind of uh, object to that? So when you look at American approval rating um, in other over countries, it goes like this when a Republican wins, and then it goes like this when a Democrat wins. And, you know, does the U.S. lose, you know, its international influence and stature and, you know, uh, uh, its living standards when a Republican is in office? No, I don't think this matters. I mean, I honestly don't think this matters. Most people don't think about foreign countries. I think a measure of like an approval of a, of a foreign country is just basically a measure of uh, uh, the media coverage. Um, and I think that there's been a lot of sort of efforts in the U.S. And, you know, the influence is felt abroad because a lot of these countries are U.S. colonies if not officially, then at least in sort of the way they they understand politics in the world, and you know Harvard or the New York Times and CNN are driving, you know how how uh, much of the world thinks about these things. These polls are usually U.S. allies, so the social and uh, political trends in these countries tends to track uh, the U.S. As far as um, the middle income trap, I mean, one thing China has done is it's actually you know proved itself to be very good at, at technological innovation. So Huawei, which the U.S. you know is going after, if you look at play, uh, areas like uh, uh, super uh, super computing. If you look at areas like uh, AI, there's a, a good book by a guy named Kai Fu Li who says uh, China is going to called AI superpowers. He thinks China is in the best position to take advantage of uh, AI in the future. Um, you see, you do see, you know, you do see basically your things. You don't see this in Mexico. You know, Mexico is also a middle income country, about uh, equal to China now at uh, GDP per capita. The, the, the Mexican science versus China, even taking into account, you know, China is much bigger than Mexico. There's just no comparison there. Um, so yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, the uh, the slower the growth is slower, but the growth is still, according to the World Bank's numbers, beating the middle income average. So as the countries get wealthier, they do grow more slowly. Um, the question is, you know, how much will it slow? Um, and you know, that's what that's uh, and we'll see. I mean, it hasn't. We haven't seen like actual slow growth, like below the U.S. any particular or below the middle income average yet. Maybe we'll see it, but we just haven't seen it yet. So. Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard to predict these things, but, you know, before we, you know, sort of write off China, I think we need to see some contrary evidence to sort of the more optimistic uh, numbers we, we've seen over the years. One thing, yeah, I mean, the one thing I've seen that's really evidence of China's, um, you know, of growth is, you know, in terms of technology and science is I know people who are in STEM, like family members, and they said that, you know, China previously, I mean, 10, 20 years ago, they were pretty far behind the U.S. and say mathematics, even producing math and science talent, really. And now, I mean, that's just totally changed. They're, you know, producing really, really top caliber people. But there's a caveat to that, which is that it used to be, you know, a lot of the people, uh, you know, my relatives in this field, um, you know, knew a lot of the Chinese um, immigrants were quite pro-China, were quite, you know, patriotic and wished to return. Now, I mean, there's much, much less of that. So I do think, I mean, China is producing a lot more elites. I still think brain drain might be a bit of a concern and also just declining elite contentment with the Chinese model. I think, I mean, it seems legitimate. I mean, maybe I haven't, I haven't seen any data to suggest that it could be true, but I mean, I haven't seen any data on that. So I guess another question I have about China is, I think does your background in political psychology and interest in cultural history play any role in your analysis of China? Because I mean, I think one thing that really realist analyses of China do wrong is they really underrate the role of kind of a unique Chinese mindset in uh, foreign policy. And, you know, so there's this famous incident, you know, when you read Chinese history, you know, the Ming, you know, Zhang He, you know, uh, travels around the world, you know, around, uh, you know, Africa and India, you know, with his treasure ships. And but then the Ming emperor, um, you know, calls calls them back, basically, you know, kind of symbolizing that, you know, 
they were not as oriented towards, you know, even then as aggressive a foreign policy. They were more into just doing, you know, uh, uh, trading with other nations, but maintaining the distance and the middle income. Edward Lutwak today calls them an autistic superpower because, mm-hmm. you know, they don't, um, um, they have maybe a bit less of an adversarial mindset because they just have a very long history as just a tributary state. So does that history play any role in your uh, kind of low, low, you know, your lower estimate of the threat of China to U.S. interests? Yeah, I mean, history, I mean, history is, uh, you know, you could rely on that. I mean, you know, but it's, you know, history can change pretty quickly. So Japan was, you know, completely isolated for a, a very long time. And then, you know, it opened into the world and then started, you know, taking, you know, uh, conquering its neighbors, um, so it, it's not it's not always the um, you know that that doesn't just because history has been a certain way doesn't mean people can't you know the uh, culture can change pretty quickly. Um, I think that you know my 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 understanding is more influenced less by a history than the idea that sort of how states behave in the modern world. So like uh, this goes back to our discussion earlier, where so much has changed as far as technology and ideas and norms. And most countries just basically now want to be left alone. And that's actually a great accomplishment of international society. Countries are not invading each other and like annexing each other territory. People who are supportive of US foreign policy will say, oh, this is because of American hegemony. I don't think it's that's true. I think just people, I agree with uh, John Mueller, um, uh, who wrote a book, The Stupidity of War, that basically, you know, we just sort of realized that it was stupid at some point. Um, and, you know, but people are, are, you know, people are not interested in conflict as much as they used to. Um, and so the, it more stems from the fact that China is a country on the other side of the world. There's no um, indication that it wants to invade other countries. Um, there's no, uh, you know, there's there's just no natural, you know, it's ideal. It doesn't have a crazy ideology that seeks world domination. I mean, some people try to exaggerate that. They try to exaggerate that with Putin or Iran or whoever we're supposed to fear that they have, you know, this totalizing ideology where they, they'll take over anybody, you know, any chance they get. I don't see any evidence of that. So it's more just, uh, you know, my view is more analysis of just sort of interest and what makes sense in the world, I think the U.S. is an outlier in its bizarre foreign policy. I mean, you look at the Afghanistan war where it's in 20 years, I mean, you read the accounts of it. There's nothing like this in China. There's nothing like this in Russia. I mean, they're doing, th- you know, sometimes they're doing aggressive things, but it, it sort of makes sense from a certain perspective. While with the U.S. just going into Iraq and, you know, staying there for 10 years, staying in Afghanistan for 20, it's just something very, very deeply pathological. So I think there's an American exceptionalism here. And, you know, that's something that sort of informs my view. Yeah, I mean, I guess what I was getting at was a little bit just, you know, China's, they've always kind of, historically, you know, they were not, they never, they weren't until- Yeah, and that's that's true. That shows you that's possible. Yeah, I mean, that shows you that's possible. But if they're, I mean, but like I said, like the Japanese example, like countries can be pretty peaceful for a while. Like the US, I mean, was pretty isolationist for most of its history, then then went crazy, right? So, I mean, so countries can change- uh, quickly, but yeah, I just, you're right. I, it's, you know, there's a historical influence there that, uh, you know, the whole historical sort of cultural continuity, but, you know, these things change is all I'd say. I mean, one kind of fascinating thing about China is that I don't think they ever really, I mean, they, until the the last century, I mean, historically, they're just, you know, a state with a pretty loosely defined borders and some tributary states around them that they deal with, basically, you know, like, uh, what's now Xinjiang, um, you know, uh, the Vietnam. And uh, it seems like their current foreign policies, in a way, there's a huge continuity there. I mean, they're, the biggest concerns today, you know, are in uh, Xinjiang, you know, where the Uyghurs are, and also in Vietnam, where, you know, they have, you know, various water border conflicts, and of course, you know, Taiwan, too. So I think the way they deal is sort of, you know, almost, you know, they see, them, they see their interests kind of, kind of protecting a sphere of influence that were 
historically, you know, way back tributary states. And I think there's some continuity there. So I guess, yeah, maybe comment on that. Uh, well, I mean, there's certainly a idea of sphere of influence, which all countries, you know, uh, that, are, that are powerful enough uh, seek seek to cultivate. I think, chi- you know, I, I don't know if the, there's continuity there. I mean, Xinjiang is, you know, in ter- part of China, and you know, yeah, they have uh, concerns about separatism there. And Vietnam is, yeah. you know, something is something Vietnam, else. Yeah. The yeah, I mean, I th- I think that we, China ha- is unusually indifferent to the internal affairs of other countries. Um, and, you know, there are Chinese minorities in other countries, like Russia, sort of really cares about Russian minorities um, in neighboring co- countries like Ukraine and Estonia. China, I mean, historically, that's, it, 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 it has cared at some points, like during, uh, uh, you know, when it had uh, the short war with Vietnam um, in, 19, in, uh, uh, in then, uh, 1979 or 1980. They, you know, they, they, they were concerned with Chinese, you know, overseas uh, in, at certain points in history, but generally, generally they're not. I mean, they, 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 they don't care whether their neighbors are democracies or dictatorships or violence human rights or uh, or don't violate human rights and so it's um so there's a you know there's a to a large extent there's just a, you know an unusual degree of indifference to its neighbors and i think that's you know that's generally healthy i mean that could be that could be you know you know you, you it's good to sometimes do moral things when you can but most of the time when countries are expressing a moral concern for what's happening in other countries the results are tend to be bad um so i think it's a more a good thing than a bad thing Segwaying to other international affairs, what's your take on the situation in Ukraine now? Uh, so yeah, the uh, so the right now is you know recording this. The U.S. is uh, the talks between uh, Russia and the U.S. have broken down. Um, there's a cyber attack today. Um, this is uh, January 14th, so uh, 2022. Uh, so there was a cyber attack um, uh, from uh, people to think from Russia uh, launched against the Ukrainian government. Um, the you know the U.S. has been. Um, so you know the Soviet Union uh, collapsed, and there was a there was basically a promise that the U.S. would not expand NATO. Um, the U.S. did expand NATO, and it basically started moving closer and closer to, Ru- to Russia's borders. Uh, the U.S. supported um, you know removing a democratic a democratically elected uh, uh, government in the Ukraine um, about a decade ago, and Russia you know Russia feels encircled. I mean, if the U.S. had um, uh, if Russia was placing you know uh, troops and making defense alliances with American neighbors, I think uh, America would be uh, pretty pretty freaked out by that. Um, and so Ukraine, I mean, just historically and culturally, is just more important than these other countries. I mean, for most of history, it was just it was just part of Russia. Um, Kiev, um, you know, is very important. You know, the you know sort of the birthplace of Russian civilization. Um, and you know, I think I think there's an idea that the U.S. is basically trying to uh, bring. Uh, Ukraine into NATO and to bring it into and bring it into sort of uh, make it a part of the Western bloc and Russia doesn't like it and Russia was you know, in the U.S. were negotiating over this. And the U.S., from all reporting and what it's saying in the media, is that it, it will never, ever take, you know, uh, the, the question of NATO, um, Ukraine uh, joining NATO off the table. Um, and so at that point, it becomes very difficult to negotiate because Russia says we have this concern and, Ch- and the U.S. says we don't care about your concern. You know, we're, we're not going to talk about it. Let's talk about other things they want to talk about, like, you know, uh, nuclear reduction. Russia said, you know, well, that's not, you know, that's not the issue here. Um, the issue is Ukraine and its potential membership in NATO. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. It's a, um, it's an unfortunate uh, situation, but it's, it's, it's very, uh, I think it's a, another example of what happens when you overextend your foreign policy. So I guess one question kind of following from that is, would you support like a Finland kind of model for Ukraine? I know some um, IR people like Kissinger wrote an op-ed supporting that after the first invasion in 2014. You know, Finland, for those who don't know, 
during most of the Cold War, um, Finland was sort of structured deliberately as a kind of a neutral power between the West and the Soviet East. Would you support kind of a similar model for Ukraine? Where it's obviously, I mean, even within Ukraine, I mean, there's some relevance. Western Ukraine is, you know, largely Polish and Ukrainian speaking, and the East is Russian speaking. So they are very, they have the geopolitical fault lines, you know, are really in the middle of the country. So would you support kind of trying to get to a Finland model? Uh, Ukraine is, uh, you know, a neutral country that yeah. you know, didn't side with either side. I think, yeah, I think that would be, that would be good. I mean, it's hard to, you know, it, it's hard to get there because, uh, you know, the Ukraine is, is a democracy, you know, of sorts and it's, um, you know, and, and people could have, you know, different opinions on, on what they want to do. And there's a, a problem with, um, uh, the, you know, there's a Russian population and the Russian population has different ideas and they, they would like to actually tilt towards, uh, towards towards Russia, um, and so you know it's hard. You know you get uh, you get people against neutrality on both sides. Yeah, I think you know I think that if the U.S. Uh, but you know the I so yeah I, I think that's right. I think Ukraine wants to uh, guarantee its sort of uh, future, you know, independently, and it wants to sort of the, the leadership that's in charge now wants to tilt towards the West. Now this leadership is also you know shutting down Rus- Russian language station. So um, and it's doing you know it's doing all kinds of it's doing forced Ukrainianization. So, you know, it's not like this is just like the pure will of the people. It's a, it's a faction that happens to be uh, in power in Ukraine now. Um, so yeah, as an outcome, that would be good as it's hard to see. Um, it's hard to see how we get there. Sort of just going with, you know, kind of further on this uh, kind of an analysis of, uh, you know, the intersection between U.S. foreign policy and the interests of other great powers. One thing that I've found a been very insightful from your work is just how much propaganda there is in favor of, you know, the American kind of perspective. So, for instance, I mean, Ukraine, for instance, you know, does not do much worse economically than Russia and pretty much by any standard of well-being. Meanwhile, you know, Putin's Russia has been basically successful in, you know, maintaining some level of internal stability on a number of factors, including, you know, Russia's infamously high violent crime rate. But anyway, you know, that Moscow's homicide rate is the lowest been since the 60s. So, I mean, I guess how does that kind of... Uh, how does that kind of propaganda kind of network among yeah. work? So, yeah, I mean, the national security establishment wants a very simplified model of the world where everyone who, the, you know, the US, U.S. is fighting is undemocratic and bad and a failure and aggressive. And everyone that, the you know, on the other side that might go live with the U.S. is democratic and, and, you know, wealthy and happy and, you know, living great. We saw this in the Afghanistan, you know, where the Afghanistan, they said that there's this new government here. We just need to prop them up. And it was an entire house of cards, right? You just blew on it and, and it fell, you know, without the, without American support. Um, yeah, Ukraine, I mean, if you look at its levels of corruption, even look at like, you know, all these like indexes of like democracy and corruption, they're all sort of BS. I mean, they're, they're done by like Western political scientists. They're done with like American support. So you can't really trust them. But even those show like Ukraine is like not that much more democratic or non-corrupt than, than Russia is. Um, and so, yeah, Ukraine has, you know, Ukraine has serious uh, problems and it's done terribly for the last, you know, since the uh, end of the end of the Cold War. Uh, so it's not a simple story where like, you know, there are these innocent, you know, great people and the Russians are like these, you know, big evil people. I mean, it's, it's a complicated uh, situation. And, you know, the people who want the U.S. to be involved is clearly none of America's business, but the people who need the U.S. Uh, to be involved, they need it to be, you know, they need the story to be simple. Otherwise, why would anyone, why would anyone support, you know, arming Ukraine or caring about caring about it one way or the other? Just kind of segueing over to um, um, U.S. politics um, for the last section of the podcast, 
can you explain your liberals read conservatives watch TV theory of U.S. politics to the listeners? Uh, sure. I mean, so uh, people can uh, look up the Substack. It's a long sort of theory about the, the differences between the two sides. It's not. It's you know, it, 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 it I, you know, it escapes sort of simple categorization. But I, I like the liberals. Uh, liberals read conservative t- watched our TV watchers because I think it's it it really reflects how groups communicate within their own culture. And sort of what the driving forces on each each side are. Now, you know, it's not literally you go I mean go to the go read the Substack for all the qualifications. Doesn't mean no liberals, uh, no liberals uh, 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 watch TV or that no conservatives read. It, you know, it's 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 not that. It just there's a ge- general tendency, and basically, liberals are motivated by um, they're motivated more by ideas, um, and it doesn't mean that they're more tolerant or anything. But you know, like for example, if they cancel someone, it's because they said something you know so-called racist or sexist or, or homophobic or whatever. Um, when Republicans cancel someone, it's usually because you know they they said something bad about Trump or they voted with Obama uh, on something, right? It's the uh, the the right is more tribal. It's less interested in policy. That's why it can zigzag all over the place. It can go from supporting Bush, who was a uh, you know who was a war hawk, to supporting Trump, who at least you know talked like you know the war on terror and uh, the Iraq War were you know big mistakes. So they can you know they can support people who uh, talk about free markets, so they can support somebody like Trump or somebody who talks more populist. Or more nationalist um, because you know they're just less interested in in these things. I mean, it's part Republicans are the less educated uh, uh, party, uh, the less educated party now. Um, it's part that the people who just care about politics less, and you know, it sort of like takes some. Uh, time and effort to you know come up with a coherent ideology and uh, uh, pay attention to it. And liberals are sometimes inconsistent too. Like uh, like I said, this is like this is not something where you should think in like absolute categories, but sort of you should think of as as a spectrum. Um, but liberals, when they move in politics, it's not in random direction. It's not like pro war, anti war. It's more like okay, now we support gay rights. Now we support trans. Right now we're for just like regular affirmative action. Now we're into like critical race theory. Right there's there's a progression that that makes sense you know, given the ideological pre-commitments, while conservatism is sort of, um, you know, it's sort of a, it's floating all over the place. It's just like, it's, it knows it hates whatever liberals are doing at this point. There are some things it's consistent on, like abortion and guns, but as far as like its complete understanding of the world, other than, you know, hating liberals, um, you know, it's, it's much, hard, much harder to find what exactly that is. I mean, I guess one, one kind of thread and kind of implication of your argument is that Genuinely conservative arguments, you know, the rich conservative intellectual uh, tradition, obviously, can't really be advanced in society or implemented in any way, generally conservative positions. If conservatives are just kind of the, this party of, you know, you say TV watchers, who just react to things, who have no clear, you know, identity other than this kind of uh, political tribalism. So how can conservative elites, because there certainly are many dedicated, motivated right-wing elites, resist the temptation of simply appeasing a base unconcerned with ideology or truth in order to actually put forward a vision of the future. And what do you think about the strengths and weaknesses of right-wing intellectual movements like the New Right, for instance, that aim to do just that, or post-liberalism? What do you think about their success chances in, a, you know, basically uh, trying to lead, you know, people who just are totally unconcerned about ideology, have kind of a folk libertarianism that doesn't really translate directly to any political outcomes? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think the new right is, I mean, I think it's sort of, I, I've looked into, you know, these, a lot of these thinkers, and I, I think they're all, I think they suffer from many of the same problems as, as the masses do. I think they're, they're all over the place. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I think that there's a sort of a, there's an idea, you know, there, it's like very cool to like denounce libertarianism and sort of like free market economics. But then like, you look at these people, like the people who, you know, use rhetoric like this, or like people consider Trump is, and they're all over the place on economics. There's everything from like, you know, free market, uh, uh, types who are just, you know, would be at home in the Republican Party uh, of, of 10, 20 years ago to people who talk about, you know, tariffs and, and uh, redistribution and all that stuff. So it, the way, you know, these people, they're, they're all over the place on the foreign policy. I mean, there's some of them who want to fight China. There's some of them who are anti, uh, anti-war, anti like, you know, even like you look at like people who are, um, you know, big Trump supporters. Some of them are, you know, even uh, against Iran and, uh, you know, more for like a more hawkish position in the Middle East. And some are just, you know, anti-war. Um, so I think it's I, I think it's um, I think it's got an incoherence there that sort of matches a little bit some of the inconsistencies that we we see um, in sort of the man who motivated all uh, Trump himself, um, and I think it's sort of keeping with the tradition of conservatives moving more to being the the party of TV watchers. Although many of these people read it individually, they have uh, ideas, and maybe they, some individuals have coherence. I don't I, this to understand the movement as coherent i find it very difficult like yeah some things like okay like bad critical race theory like yeah they all want to do that you know um but like you know besides like yeah they want to fight liberals so if you if you have like something which says you know i'm, I'm gonna like you know they love there's um there was an article in the federalist i tweeted about the other day it's like conservatives must deliver uh for their voters in uh 2022 um, and so if they win, they must deliver. And this article is by a, a woman named Rachel Boulevard, who's apparently one of these uh, new right intellectuals. And I, I look through the article and there's not a single thing that they're supposed to deliver on. It's supposed to, it's like, it's like things are going bad. Like nobody's protecting life. Nobody's protecting women's sports. There's critical race theory tradings everywhere. And, but, but that's not like a plan to do anything, right? That's just complaining about stuff. Um, and so that, you know, and so I think this is, I think this is a problem. And I, I, you know, even though some thinkers, you know, I appreciate what they're doing. I think as like a movement, I don't think it's begun to, to do much. What about oh, it's gonna, maybe it's going to do something like it's created a new rhetorical style and it's created sort of a new list of enemies. But as far as like having like an intellectual agenda of like what you would actually do with power, I think that, that that's where they're coming up short so far. Do you think the old kind of paleocon, right? I mean, kind of starting with someone like H.L. Mencken, who wasn't obviously explicitly that, but he's kind of a forerunner. Um, do you think that has potential for some kind of resurgence or some kind of vitality? Like, do you, do you have any, what, what, what's your opinion on that? Um, yeah, so I think what it has, what, uh, you know, paleoconservative, it's funny because you say H.L. Mencken, but then like it's associated with Pat Buchanan and H.L. Mencken yeah. and Pat Buchanan. They wouldn't get of, along. Yeah, I don't think. But I, think he, I think he was kind of a proto-paleo. I mean, yeah, yeah, you're right. But, but, but there are some, I think, consistencies, right, between Mencken and Buchanan, right? There's the anti-war stuff. I mean, Buchanan, later Buchanan, early Buchanan was uh, Nixon with Nixon in Vietnam. Um, the, so the, there's the anti-war stuff. There's the sort of the anti-elite. There's the, the social conservatism. If we're going to say, well, like, what the, what's the sort of old paleoconservatism is going to be? It's going to be probably, you know, uh, federalist. It's going to be, you know, uh, pro, pro-market. It's going to be um, very anti-political correctness, right? Um, it's going to be anti-democratic to a certain, ex- a certain extent, you know, just skepticalism, mass democracy. 
democracy skeptical of uh, sort of, you know, what people call the managerial class, a, a term that I, I don't like, but you know, whatever we can use it for, um, we can use it for these purposes. Yeah, I think that, you know, I think that the fact that the Republicans are the party of TV watchers is that like intellectuals have a lot of freedom. So the next conservatism could be like free market or it could be populist or it could be nationalist or it could be just an incoherent bumble, you know, jumble of nothing, just people, you know, complaining about Kamala Harris. But once you do get the power or influence, there's a lot you could do because your voters don't, don't care about policy. So you could just, you know, do nothing. Um, you could just like sort of submit to the left and like be a moderate and just make a lot of noise, or you can do some pretty radical things. So I think the sort of what's happening on the intellectual right matters a lot for determining what's going to happen when Republicans are in power. And obviously the, you know, the idea of Republicans watch TV, liberals read, that also has some implication for liberal elites, because if liberal elites want to uh, maintain power, they also, they also have to uh, kind of uh, promote themselves as middle or lower middle class, right wing, uh, you know, non-intellectuals. So what's a way, I guess, kind of, a, in kind of to dovetail with kind of a shortism trend? Like, what's a way liberals can do that? Um, so I think, uh, I think there's a, you know, a few things that liberals do. I think you want to make, you know, you want to, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of uh, liberalism has just been sort of thinking you're going to coast on demographics. So there was this idea that Hispanics are, you know, very uh, growing and they're uh, overwhelmingly Democrat and they're going to stay overwhelmingly Democrat and young people are Democrat and they're going to stay Democrat. And like, eventually, you know, they'll have, you know, complete, um, uh, control, you know, basically they'll just give Democrats basically a complete, you know, permanent majority. And this hasn't really happened. And the Hispanic, I think, shifts towards Republicans, even though they're not like majority Republican by any means, just any shift sort of complicates that and makes things harder for the left because they can't coast on this demographic uh, thing that they, you know, they, they think they have going for them. Um, I think what, what you do is, I mean, look, I, I think that either side can win just because it's so polarized, you know, it's like, you know, either side can get 45% or whatever in a presidential election. Um, just by, you know, nominating anybody because, you know, the, the people are just so, so polarized. So that's sort of where the party's at. I think, you know, I think they tend to do better with more moderate uh, candidates who don't rock, who don't challenge the status quo. I mean, you look at someone like Joe Manchin. I mean, he's the only, probably the only kind of Democrat who can win in West Virginia. Um, and I think that, you know, there's something called thermostatic public opinion where public opinion does not like change, like either in a conservative or a liberal direction. Um, so, you know, depending on where you're running, just having somebody who doesn't rock the boat and who's generic and who doesn't just rub people the wrong way, like Kamala Harris. I mean, I think that's, that's how you win. It doesn't have to be anything, you know, amazing, like, oh, you have to have some like great new spin on like, you know, to speak to people about their lives. It's, it's mostly just about, you know, not screwing things up and not being offensive to a lot of people. Wonderful. I guess so my final question is, so to wrap up, I see two running themes in your work, and mm. I wonder how you address them. Um, so on the one hand, you're quite clearly an adherent of the Pinkerite thesis, you know, that globalization and liberal capitalism have basically worked to improve living standard, standards and reduce the risk of social conflict. On the other hand, you're often very critical of international institutions, their efficacy, and um, the moral values of Western elite. Um, so how do you bridge the gap between optimism about, you know, basically uh, some form of liberal internationalism and the communitarian critique that's become increasingly popular on the right? And I think you endorse at least somewhat that elites are out of touch with, you know, just the traditions, habits of the populace. And there needs to be some kind of uh, reconciliation. 
So that's an excellent, I mean, that's an excellent question. That is a, that is a sort of contradiction or a tension in, you know, in my writing that no one has ever asked me about before. So congratulations on the, on the great question. Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, the, I think probably the way I'd put it is that humans, you know, humanity goes through history and it faces different problems, right? So there was a problem at one point where people fought um, people fought wars pretty commonly, right? Um, we we mostly, for the most part, you know, solved that problem. Um, where people, you know, were 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 starving to death, right? They had uh, they had you know they needed the basic basics of of life met, um, you know, and we and we've done we've done that. We sort of I think we we know sort of the. Um, the model of economic growth. I think everyone basically agrees that basically you have you have markets and you know rent seeking is a danger and central planning is a danger. And sometimes we still get rent seeking and we still get you know governments trying to central plan. But it, but it's we, we uh, like I think a lot of the world, not the entire world, but a lot of the world understands we know how to get uh, economic growth and we've been doing particularly in the third world they've been doing it you know very well. They've been uh, growing very very quickly. Um, and so you know these, these are problems that I think have. Um, have been, uh, if not, you know, solved, things never get solved, you know, humanity has learned to deal with. And so I think that, you know, as we advance, other problems uh, pop up. So lower birth rates, um, I think, you know, the sort of uh, uh, the, the loss of community, the loss of uh, the loss of uh, a family and people's um, loss of meaning in life. I, I think all those things are real things. And we sort of need to find a way um, to address these problems. And I think one of the things, you know, really hard on people is when they're sort of, they're acting like, you know, that it's early 20th century problems in a society with, you know, 21st century problems. When some people say, you know, Western civilization depends on, you know, checking Russia expansion or like checking uh, Chinese expansion. I'm very, just very triggered by that because, you know, no, the threats that Russia and China face, I think are many of the same threats we face. I think the lower birth rate in China is something that, you know, they're working on. It's a, the same uh, problem we're working on. Uh, we're working on. Um, you know, I think that you know, uh, sort of a uh, rent-seeking, uh, you know, class uh, class of fake expertise that is basically getting um, uh, power and and prestige and basically interfering with people's ability to live their own lives. I mean, I think that that's you know the extent to which you have that kind of rent-seeking and you have that kind of a uh, uh, bureaucratic control within your own country is a bigger threat to you than whatever somebody else in a foreign country is going to do. And I think the U.S., you know, uh, they, I like you know globalization in the sense of you know international, uh, you know, working out you know our problems uh, diplomatic. And, and trading, but uh, the extent that the you know the crazy ideas that have come out of U.S. civil rights law and have come out of U.S. universities to the extent that they're being exported abroad, um, I think that's that's very dangerous. So I you know I, you know I, and I think I, the way I see it is different from a lot of people. It's a lot of people like you know the anti sort of globalist right has always like been like anti UN and like anti these international organizations. Well, I see sort of America as like the center of like a lot of things that conservatives you know don't like justifiably, uh, particularly our universities and our in our uh, in our media um so yeah I, I you know i think that people say you know the, the hetero, heterodox views you know I, I don't i think that should be sort of the norm there's no reason like you have like one grand theory of history that should explain like what countries should be doing and uh you know the 19th century and the 20th century and the 21st century i think you you know you take you take sort of history and social and cultural development um where it's at and then think through problems from there pleasure to talk to you thank you I'd like to thank our guest, Richard Hanania, for a fascinating discussion. This is Blaze Brosnan for MIR Meets.